0: Show number 220 of Look at His Butt, special interview edition. And that is how you say Look at His Butt in Klingon. We finally have our interview with Mark Okrand here. We've been talking about this for a while and we got him on Skype and he graciously gave us more than an hour of his time to talk all about Star Trek and Klingon and all the other work that he's done. It's a marvelous interview with lots of insights into the making of Star Trek and Klingon. So please enjoy the following interview with Mark Okrand. Hello! Hello! Hello. Uh, So here we are, and we're talking with uh, Mark Oakrand, who's one of our... uh like on the to-do list, wouldn't it be great to talk with him? And now we're getting to talk with you, which is so awesome. So thank you so much for agreeing to chat oh, with us.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Yeah. So we've got some questions that we always ask everybody that we mm-hmm. talk to. And then we just want to talk generally about what you've been doing. And at some point, we'll get to talk about Axonor for sure. It's very much in the news. But let's let's go back to the beginning. So the first question is... Wait, wait. Oh, oh what? what Fill our listeners in on who
2: Mark oh, is. Oh, of course. Well, we've talked about him before. But... I know, but I don't know how well they pay attention. Well, <laughs> okay.
0: So Mark is a linguist, and he is the man who essentially invented the Klingon language at the behest of the makers of Star Trek and has been working on it uh, ever since. He has a whole other career doing other linguistically mm-hmm. related things, but to Star Trek fans, that's how he'll, he'll mostly be known. Um, so we want to know, how did you get into Star Trek first, going all the way back?
1: mean professionally um
0: or or personally like did you watch it when you were growing up
1: well when when it was new I mean the original series was on tv for the first time I was in college
0: Uh
1: and I was aware of it but at that time generally speaking people didn't have tvs in their dorm rooms Mm -hmm. so I knew what was on tv but didn't see a lot of tv Mm -hmm. um but every once in a while I'd I'd, you know I'd, I'd catch star trek at somebody's house or something like that a little bit oh this is interesting what is this all about and well back back to school <laughs> uh, so like most people you know i got i got caught up with it in the reruns mm-hmm. when, when it was on a lot um and the way i got involved in it professionally i mean i so it was always there in the background i was you know, i knew the show i knew the details i wasn't one of those people who who could you know sort of listen to the first three bars of music and tell you which episode mm-hmm. it is or something like that um but I got involved with it because of my then regular job, which was closed captioning. Oh. So we do, were doing subtitles on TV for deaf people. And when and I started working with that before it was on the air. So I was in there from the very, very beginning. And for the first couple of years, we could only caption uh, recorded shows, shows on tape or film, like you know sitcoms or movies or something. But we finally figured out a way to caption live programs like news and sports. And the first one... We did that we announced to the world we were doing. We did it without telling people. But the person where we announced we were doing it, we, we thought it should be a program that had high publicity value and relatively small probability of error. So we chose the Oscars. Hmm. And the publicity value is obvious. mm mm-hmm. The low probability of error is, big secret here, the show is mostly scripted. <laughs> yeah!
0: <laughs> that made so it so much the easier. The plan was,
1: mm-hmm. we would get the script ahead of time and put it into a computer file, essentially. Mm-hmm. And the only part we'd have to do really, really live is, and the winner, uh, and the Oscar goes to mm-hmm. so-and-so, and then I'd like to thank my mother and father and dog, that mm-hmm. part. Um, and that's legit. I mean, they really did that. really is a surprise. That part's not scripted. So we figured... If the, the, if the new live captioning wasn't as good as we hoped, at least most of the show would be okay because it would be all entered from the script.
2: And who cares about who wins these things anyway? <laughs> that's true too, that's
1: yeah. true. Um, so anyway, we proposed this to the Oscar folks and they said, great idea and we'll give you a script, but the script keeps changing as it gets <laughs> closer to the <laughs> show, is revisions, revisions, revisions. So someone has to keep track of this so you're sure you have the latest version. So somehow or other, I was chosen to be that person. Went out to Hollywood, called up who I'm supposed to call. This was a Monday. Um, And they said, well, welcome to L.A. You know, we'll have a script for you on Thursday. So I had Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday with nothing to do. Oh. Which was fine with me. Uh, So I was out there in L.A., uh, which is where I I grew up. So my family knew I was there. But I hadn't called any friends because I didn't want to say, hey, I'm in town and I have no time to see you. (laughs) Yeah. And this is pre-email and everything else. So anyway, uh, I got on the phone and started calling friends and said, hey, I'm in town. Let's have dinner. Let's have lunch. And one of my friends said, where are you? Where are you calling from? So I told her where I was. She said, oh, that's like a mile from here. Why don't you come by for lunch? It's Monday morning. Okay. So I went to where she was for lunch. Well, where she was was where she worked, which is Paramount Pictures. Mm -hmm. Uh, Her boss was Harv Bennett. Probably. oh okay uh and at this point they were in post-production for star trek 2 right right and i i knew my friend is you know is is working for star trek and i knew harv as well from years before in a different context so i i have two friends working on star trek that's cool but that was it that's the extent of the connection so anyway she and i went out to lunch uh with, with another. I guess, secretary or ex- assistant of some kind or something to some producer. And during lunch, uh, the, the the woman who I hadn't known before said, I understand you have a degree in linguistics. I said, yes. She said, that's weird <laughs> <laughs> because we've been talking to the linguistics department at UCLA recently. I said, why? She said, well, there's a scene in the movie in Star Trek II. Uh, th- there were a lot more forthcoming with mm-hmm. giving information. Yes. About- And they are now. Uh, There's a scene in the movie where Mr. Spock and this new female Vulcan character, new character, have a little conversation. And when they filmed the scene, the actors were speaking English because the script said to do that. But now that we're in post-production, it makes more sense to everybody if they were speaking Vulcan together. So we got this idea of hiring a linguist from UCLA to come and look at this scene and look at their lips and listen to what they said and basically make up gobbledygook syllables that match the lips okay but don't sound the same and then they would dub it in like a foreign film and we'll put in subtitles and I said that's a really smart idea you know good for you
3: Mm -hmm.
1: and she said well we thought and a a linguist is is the right kind of person to do that because they'll understand what kind of sounds look alike and what Mm -hmm. kind of sounds you can see and cannot see on the lips and all that so uh she said we thought it was a good idea too but it's turned into a headache." And now this is, what, 35 years ago or more? I don't know. Mm-hmm. start back two time. And I don't remember what the headache was. Although I do remember it was a boring headache. <laughs> it has to do with, you know, phone tag or someone's not available that day or something. She said, I don't know what we're going to do because we have to have this taken care of right away. I said, what do you mean right away? She said, it's got to be done by the end of this week, which is exactly how long I was in town for the Oscars. So I said, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> I Always fr- say yes. Uh, yes. My friend said, yeah, he can do that. He's got the same kind of degrees as those people at UCLA do. And at that point, one of the associate producers walked by and they said, hey, we just solved the Vulcan problem. And he says, what do you mean? So she told him and he said to me, come see me after lunch. So that's how that happened. Wow. wow. Uh, can I, can now, just... the fact the fact that I knew Harv, the, you know, Harv Bennett is mm-hmm. not irrelevant to the story because mm-hmm. it was ultimately his decision to hire me. Right uh but i didn't go there to get a job you know i went there to get a sandwich so anyway
0: yeah well i i would say um looking back the comment about you having uh, just as good a degree as the people in ucla is actually not true your degree was from berkeley so it was a better degree <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> that, that's just, some people
0: would disagree but anyway I mean, <laughs> well, being i i i firmly remain um convinced that the berkeley degree is a more valuable one mm-hmm. in right. so, um, anyway wow that's an amazing story um to, I want to just go back a second to the closed captioning stuff. So I'm I'm really fascinated by this. When they were when you were introducing this kind of live closed captioning, how does that work? Are there people sitting at a computer terminal, literally just typing it in as they're hearing? What's yes, being but,
1: said? yes, but yes, but they're not. But the, the keyboard is not a standard computer keyboard. Uh-huh. So it's a steno machine, which is oh, this oh. in a court. Oh wow! The people doing this at the time were uh, court reporters. And in a courtroom, traditionally, uh, they they enter on the type is a funny word. They they they, they like to say they stroke the machine. Anyway, yeah. they they hit the keys on the machine, uh, and they're going phonetically for the most part. It's mm-hmm. not entirely true. Uh, they're not spelling anything, mm-hmm. okay? But the keys on their on their keyboard correspond to letters. It's not it's not weird shorthand symbols or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason they can go fast is on, on a standard computer keyboard or typewriter or whatever. A word like institute is I-N-S-T-I-T-U-T-E. You have to hit the keyboard nine times because there's nine letters.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: On the steno keyboard, you could do a whole syllable at once because you can hit either one key at a time or several keys at the same time like a chord on a piano. Oh. So they could do the syllable ins is one stroke, and they can skip the T and go toot, which is another stroke. So they go ins, toot, hitting the keyboard two times rather than nine times and that's where they can go fast, all right? But it's trickier than that because there's no N on their keyboard, mm-hmm. okay? So ins, to hit to get the N sound, you hit the P key and the B key at the same time. Wow. wow. There's no I on the keyboard, so to make the is sound, you hit the E key and the U key at the same time. So to get the syllable ins, you're simultaneously striking E, U, P, B, S. That, that's ins, of course. <laughs> and so on. So anyway, so it's, it's a weird, strange thing. Traditionally in a courtroom, all this prints out on a, paper that comes out of the back of the machine like like cash register tape. Yeah,
0: like a scroll. You see that all the time on television. Right,
1: on TV, right. Uh, But what it'll print out for institute is on one line it'll say E-U-P-B-S and the next line it'll say T-A-O-T. That's toot because T-U-T is tut It'll say U-P-B-S T-A-O-T. Period, right, the end of a sentence, the dot, is F-P-L-T because that's four keys next to each other. Anyway, and so on. And these people can read these things fine with no problem. So it used to be they'd take this pack of paper, go to their office, read it, type it up, and, you know, give it to the judge the next day. They developed a technology that computer does that. Wow. And that was adapted to work with the closed captioning technology. So so that's basically how it works. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's it's gotten better and better over the years. If you watch it now, you still kind of see kind of funky things from time to time. Uh, Some reasons, but... When they do closed
0: captioning now, like for the news at night, is it still a person who's listening to it and doing that
1: process? There's three ways of doing it now. That's one way. Uh, Another way takes advantage of speech recognition technology. Uh Uh, It's not good enough that you can just hold up a microphone to the TV and that's the end of it, because then all these captioning companies would go out of business. (laughs) Um, So what it is is someone is listening to the news or whatever and repeating everything they hear so that the, the speech recognition uh, thing is, is hearing one voice, talking, voice. Oh. talking very clearly, yes. adding information and all that. Oh, how interesting. And, and a third way that, that's less common and is generally found only in smaller cities uh, is hook the captioning gizmo up to a teleprompter. So, this, that's, oh. so the, as the news uh, reporters are reading the teleprompter, what they're seeing on the teleprompter is also being incorporated yeah. into the, and that works fine as long as everything is scripted when they say, okay, now we're gonna to go to report for that, for, you know, it's so-and-so mm-hmm. so on Highway 6, then the captions stop.
3: mm mm-hmm.
1: yeah. Oh, wow. But that's, it's being replaced, over, you know, over time by these other two technologies.
0: Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. Yes, that, it is. Yeah, amazing. Okay, cool. Thank you very much for, for filling us in on that. I'm sure
2: most people listening have absolutely no idea how that well, works, as I, always, I did. I literature. always wondered how that court stenographer thing worked. So yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, yeah.
1: Cool. Yeah. When you see... In the captions, you know, as I say, you still see you know mistakes from time to time. Sometimes mm-hmm. it could be the person's mistake, although not—they're really good. I mean, they're way ninety-eight percent or better tech, uh, accuracy.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but you know, on a on a standard keyboard, if you hit the wrong key, you get one wrong letter, but the rest of the word is okay. Mm-hmm. But on the steno machine, you hit the wrong key and you get an abbreviation for something else, mm-hmm. and it, mm. so it's it's kind of weird. Having said that, and that happens from time to time because people are people, um, a lot of the mistakes you see have to do with, with how good your re- TV reception is and stuff like that is something that's beyond the captioner's control.
0: Hmm. Cool. OK. Uh, so that's great. Good background. Um, so first step was Vulcan, and you did that. And when you created that, were you really just literally trying to match up lip movements? All with- I was doing is matching
1: up the lips. Yeah. They showed me the little scene. Okay, and it's mm-hmm. it's it's Spock and Savic. Uh, she says something. He says something. She says something. He says something. That's it. So I watched that. I wrote down what they were saying, and I looked at their lips while they were talking to see if they were doing anything that I could take advantage of, even even if it didn't make any noise in English. Mm-hmm. And Leonard Nimoy did. Okay, this sounds silly, but at the end of his two lines, he closed his mouth. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh. So. don't hear anything i forget one of his lines he 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 says what surprises you savik or something like that so the last word is savik but he says savik then closes his mouth says aha when i make up this language the last syllable for that line is um Mm -hmm.
3: because
1: that's what it looks like even though he doesn't
3: say yeah
1: so it was a combination of what what they were saying and what their lips were doing although Mm -hmm. mostly what they were saying so i so i you know wrote that wrote this stuff down went back Figured stuff out. Sat in front of a mirror for a long time to see if it really worked. Then I went in the next day. It was the next day or the day after. Met with the producer. Okay, we're going to go teach Savic. I didn't know who that was at that time. We're going to go teach Savic her lines. All right. And then the guy says, as we're walking over, they says, "You know, in Star Trek the Motion Picture, they talked Vulcan a little bit." Uh, your language should sound like that, so let's go look at it. I'm thinking, now you tell me. Why didn't you, tell me? <laughs> <laughs> you know, all this? So we went and looked, and there's a scene in Star Trek, the motion picture, where Spock is being inducted into this cult, mm-hmm. right, called yes. mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's all in Vulcan. There's a, the priestess or whatever she is conducting the ceremony talks, and she's got a little assistant who says a line, maybe. Uh, and then Spock changes his mind. But anyway, that's all, all in Vulcan, so I'm saying, alright, I can't change what I've done, and because it matches the lips. So I'm trying to hear, am I hearing anything that I can add that you you can hear but cannot see? Mm-hmm. And what I heard from time to time in this Vulcan in, in the first movie was the kind of sound,
3: mm-hmm.
1: which you cannot see on the lips. So I sprinkled a few in there.
3: <laughs>
1: uh, or, uh, kh, you know, similar kinds of things. Uh, so then I go in and I meet Kirstie Alley. And I'm standing there teaching her how to, how to say that here's this matches up with this English word and here's how this works and here's how this sounds. Uh, and the director of the film, Nick Meyer, was there on the other side of the room. And I hear him pull the producer aside. And he said, I don't know if this Vulcan is going to work. And the producer said, why? What's the matter? And Nick said, I don't think Vulcan should sound like Yiddish. <laughs> And what he was hearing was the <laughs> wasn't there before, <laughs> and the producer said, let's try it anyway. Let's let's just do it anyway. So we did, and uh, uh, you know, Kirstie dubbed in her lines to match the lips up and stuff. And then when they played it back, since since Leonard Nimoy wasn't there, it was uh, Savic says something in Vulcan, Spock responds in English. Savic says something in Vulcan, Spock responds in English, and and Nick approved. He said, okay, fine, we'll, we'll wow. do this. Uh, so a couple of days later, I went back and had to do the same with, with Leonard Nimoy, right? Uh, so I got there on time, and Nimoy got there on time. The engineer guy got there on time, and whoever brings the donuts got there on time. <laughs> but there was nobody else there, right? So the engineer is up in his little room, and I'm in this soundstage place, Uh with, you know, with Mr. Spock and donuts. And I'm thinking, <laughs> what, what, what do I do? Because I knew who he was, obviously, but he didn't know who I was. So I introduced myself. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They told me you were coming. Show me what I have to do. So I said, okay. So I showed him the lines that I figured out at Vulcan and showed him how it matched the English. And he said, now, if I say this rather than this, will that still work? I said, yeah. Okay. Let's change it. That'll be easier to say. All right. If I say this rather than this, will that still work? No. Okay, we'll leave that alone. So we modified it a little bit. Uh, then he recorded his lines, and then I left because at this point I had Oscar stuff to do. Mm-hmm. So you know, so I was driving off to the Oscars, realizing that I had just taught Mr. Spock how to speak mm-hmm. Vulcan. You know, which is very weird. And thought honestly and truly thought, you know, that was fun. That was interesting. That's the end of my connection to Star Trek because I did it. It's done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And about a year and a half later, uh, I got a call from Harv Bennett, who said, well, we're making another movie. Uh, the villains are going to be the Klingons. He says, I think they ought to have their own language. You did Vulcan. You want to do Klingon? And that's how that happened.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh, amazing.
1: So the fact that there's a Klingon language at all, actually, is, is due to, to Harv, not due to me. It was his idea.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, so the situation, though, for Klingon was very different, because you knew ahead of time and presumably right. they they gave you a lot more prep time to actually construct the thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. There was not. A, I mean, there was you know a couple of months, um, as opposed as opposed to overnight. Mm-hmm. But um, but it was yeah it was it was basically starting from scratch, but not quite because there was Klingon in the in the motion picture Star mm-hmm. Trek the picture, which is the very very beginning of the movie. There's these three Klingon ships, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. And one by one, they get zapped by something. Mm -hmm. And the plot of the movie is what happened to the Klingons. But before that happens, you see inside what I guess is the main ship. And there's a Klingon captain or commander, whatever his rank is. And it's the first time we've seen Klingons with the bumps on their forehead and everything. And he's shouting out commands in some funny language with English subtitles. And that's the real beginning of the Klingon language. Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't know when I got into this, but I found out afterwards... Uh, that those lines were made up by James Doohan, by Scotty.
2: <gasps> oh, I think we had heard something yeah. about that. Yeah. And
1: he volunteered to do this. Uh he he and one of the producers, I don't know who, worked, worked together on it and my understanding is what happened is uh, uh Jimmy recorded some lines uh into a, into a tape recorder thing. And then gave the tape to Mark Leonard, who normally played Spock's father, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he played this uh, Klingon in the first movie. Gave, gave Mark the tape, and Mark listened to the tape and wrote down what he was hearing so he could, you know, practice and memorize the mm-hmm. lines and stuff. Uh, so what, the, you know, how, what Jimmy said on the tape, how much that resembles what Mark ultimately says on the screen, I have no idea, yeah. uh, because you know, it was like the telephone game, as it goes through hands, mm-hmm. it yeah. changes a little bit. Um, but that's where the, that's where it came from. So by luck, by luck, we were working on closed captioning Star Trek: The Motion Picture just as this <laughs> was getting going. So I was able to look at it
3: mm-hmm.
1: and write down, you know, the, the 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 Klingon phonetically, and write down the subtitles, and that was the start. I said, okay, here we go. He's, he says, we cha. Well, that's real Klingon, whatever it means. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then just added and added and added to that, uh, you know, thinking, thinking about various things to make it sound weird and other and all that kind of stuff. Yeah.
0: Wow. So as you created it, did you have input from other sources or, or was it just you really thinking it, it through?
1: It was, it was, it was just me and you know, the six lines, six, eight lines from the motion picture. Yeah. Now the, I, I had discussions with Harv about it before I got going, uh, and the script, and so, you know, he had, he had a sort of, a few kind of general ideas, and the script itself said, uh, uh, what, the way they indicated that, that something was supposed to be in Klingon, it would be a Klingon character, and then it, the line would be in parentheses, that means it's in Klingon, not in English, mm-hmm. um. But every once in a while, it, was, it has, you know how stage directions sometimes are a lot of fun? Mm-hmm. <laughs> would say all this stuff. So every once in a while, it would say, Krug, right? He's the, the villain. Mm-hmm. Krug says in his guttural Klingon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it says in guttural Klingon. All right. It, it, it have the uh, in there, too. But that's okay, because it's in the script. And it was also in the motion picture. So. But I added a few more uh, kind of sounds. <laughs> so it be truly guttural. But Good. mostly, mostly it was me, and 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 what I was thinking was it was a couple of things. One was, I wanted it to sound like nothing identifiable. I
2: mm-hmm. didn't want someone to say,
1: "Oh, that sounds like French," that sounds like you mm-hmm. know, Arabic or whatever, anything. Um, so, and, and and I wanted it to be a non-human language, because Klingons are not human, right? So, thinking about that, you know, uh, human languages have certain tendencies and commonalities and stuff like that there's no absolutes but certain sounds for example tend to go together in the same language and certain sounds tend to not be together in the same language and stuff like that so i violated those rules in picking the sounds and there's no sound in klingon that you can't find in some human language or other but you can't find that collection of sounds Mm -hmm. in human language Mm because they shouldn't be human languages don't work that way Mm -hmm. okay which is why klingon is hard to pronounce if you're pronouncing it Correctly, although any individual sound is not tough to pronounce, but the transition from one to the other is sometimes tough. Um, I did a similar thing with the with the basic grammar of Klingon, sort of the three basic elements of a sentence, from a certain point of view, or the subject, the verb, and the object. Right, so dogs bite people. Dogs is the subject. Verb is the uh, bite. Is the verb. People is the object. Um, those three things in any language have to be said in some order or other. In English, it's in that order that, you know, dogs bite people, subject, verb, then object. But there's mathematically six possibilities, subject, Mm -hmm. object, object, verb, subject, verb, subject, object, so on. There's six. And if you look around the world, you'll find languages representing all six, but some of them are a whole lot more common than others. So among the most common is the one that English happens to have, which is subject, then verb, then object. Among the least common are the ones where the object comes first. So I picked that for Klingon. Mm -hmm. And then Klingon word order is backwards from English, object, then verb, then subject. And and I chose that not because it's backwards from English, but because it's the least common in the world's languages, and therefore, from a funny point of view, the least human. Mm -hmm. With apologies to people whose language really (laughs) does that. So So those are the kinds of things I was thinking. But superimposed on all that, especially from the phonetic side, is I had to teach the actors to do this mm-hmm. relatively quickly. So it couldn't be too weird and bizarre because they had to be able to say these lines. And and it was you no know, and it was real people saying it. What I mean by that is there's no electrical enhancement or playing tapes backwards or something mm-hmm. like that. So it really had to be even if it was a little bit tricky, had to had to be pronounceable and, and learnable pretty quick.
0: And and also actable, right? They had to say them while acting the meaning of the language right. that you had invented, so it wasn't just repeating it; it was acting it.
1: Right, right. So they had to know what it means. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. And for some of them, that was that was pretty straightforward. Most of this in, in Star Trek Three, which is where all this was happening, right? Uh, most of the actors who speak Klingon had only one line, and that's sort of the the crew on the. On the bird of prey, you know, when stuff's happening, they're just yelling and screaming. Each one had had about one line, but they were excited about that because that's. Other than that, they didn't have any lines. <laughs> uh The one who had the most lines was Christopher Lloyd, mm-hmm. played Krug, uh and he was very interested in what what the what the lines meant and what the individual words meant and stuff like that, so that he could play it properly. And then Leonard Nimoy, who was the director. Uh, was also very serious about the whole thing, and he he wanted it to sound right. So, you know, when when you make a movie, the, the director yells, okay, action, and the actors do whatever they do, then the director yells, cut, and then the director checks with the camera person to make sure everything was okay, you know, there wasn't a shadow of a microphone or something. Checks with the sound person to make sure that everything's okay there and the truck didn't go by or what have you. And when Klingon was spoken... Would check with me, make sure the Klingon sounded okay, and if it sounded okay, I'd say fine, and if it didn't, I'd say no. I learned very quickly not to say no very often. <laughs> <laughs> but but they did take it seriously. That's you know they 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 did want it to sound right. There was one uh, scene where where Krug is tell, tells his gunner, there's a there's a Federation ship out there, and I want you to aim whatever kind of gun you've got, torpedo thing or Whatever you've got at it, but don't destroy the ship. I just want you to hit the engine. And the phrase engine only, he says in Klingon, which is like that. But when they shot the scene, he said, I want you to just do that. But instead of J'ot-a-ne-ch, he said J'ot-a-ne-ch, like mm. that. And Leonard said, cut, cut, cut. You know, you're supposed to be talking Klingon, not French. <laughs> <laughs> so the point of that is that even though you know, I, I couldn't be as picky as I might have wanted to. They, would, they did take it very, very seriously. Wow. Now, if the actor said something other than what I wanted him to say, but it still sounded like good Klingon to me, and at that point, no one had heard this language except mm-hmm. for me, I'd say, okay, fine. So if the actor said toe and I wanted him to say to, I'd say, that's okay. And I made myself a note. Okay, I'm changing that word. The word is now toe instead of to. Next time, he's better say toe mm-hmm Okay. So the language changed as a result of the movie making.
0: Mm. So cool. So then after three, where after did it go? Three from? was four that only had whales, so right. we don't talk
1: about it. Then right. it was five. <laughs> um, and in between three and five, actually, right at the end of three, yeah, there was TNG. Well, TNG started just before the shooting of five, right. Mm-hmm. But right after Star Trek III, I got the idea, actually still during the filming of Star Trek III, I got the idea about writing a book explaining how the language works. And I proposed that, and then the powers that be at, at Paramount said, yeah, that's a good idea, do it. So I wrote this book called The Klingon Dictionary, mm-hmm. which is partly dictionary, but partly a, gr- a description of the grammar. And uh, it came out about six months, I guess, or so after, after the Star Trek III came out. Um, but it, was out, it had been out for a little while by the time Star Trek V came along. So in making up the dialogue for Star Trek V, there was two things about it uh, that were different from Star Trek III. One was the sentences were longer. There was, there was conversations
3: mm-hmm.
1: that the characters had, not just barking of commands, which is mostly what, what Krug did in Star Trek III, not entirely, but mostly. Um, and the other difference was I had to pay attention to the dictionary. I could just make it up as I'm going along anymore. Right. Okay, so now if they said toe instead of two, I'd say, No, 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 <laughs> we can't do that because it's in the dictionary mm-hmm. as toe or two, whichever one I said, you know. Uh so it was actually harder to make up the dialogue for Star Trek five uh than it than it was starting from scratch almost for Star Trek three because because of this book I wrote, you know, I'm stuck <laughs> with it.
0: And and so how did uh, how did they bring you into TNG? How did that work?
1: I got I got brought into TNG almost by accident when I was there shooting Star Trek V, because I was on I was on the set for Star Trek III almost all the time when they're speaking Klingon, not quite but almost. And Star Trek V, I think I was there all the time when they were when they're speaking Klingon. So I was on the on the lot for a while, and one day. Uh, there was a guy who worked for Star Trek: but Next Generation. So there was there's a, there was a political <laughs> or business difference between the TV show and the movie, mm-hmm. uh, and this guy worked for the TV show, but also had had dealings with with, with the movie people. Anyway, he's, he said, you know, come look in this storeroom I've, we've got. There's a, a room in the office building where the next generation offices were filled with Star Trek stuff. And by stuff, I mean books and baseball hats and mugs and posters and all these things that they would give out at Star Trek conventions or that sort of stuff. Um, he says, look, here's, here's your dictionary. Mm-hmm. So there, was, you know, there was a number of copies of the dictionary. and I said, wow, I said to myself. You know, It's one thing to have your book if you write a book and you find it in a bookstore, right? That's cool. Mm-hmm. That's very cool. <laughs> but to find it on the shelf at Star Trek, that's <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, so that happened. And the very next day or two days later, I saw the guy. He said, remember I showed you those books, those dictionaries on the shelf there? I said, yeah. He said, they all disappeared. He said, nothing else was taken from the room. But the dictionaries are gone. He said, I don't know what happened. The next time I saw him, he said, I know what happened. (laughs) They're working on an episode for Next Generation that has Klingons in it. And they wanted to make up Klingon dialogue. So the writers and producers and whoever knew about the book. So they went and borrowed it or took it. Um, And they were going through and they realized that even though they had this book in front of them, they couldn't quite figure out how to make Mm -hmm. the sentences say what they wanted them to mean. And I said, oh, well, Mark is here. Why don't you ask him? (laughs) And they said he is, you know. So I went over and talked to the Next Generation folks and made up—I don't know—four or five lines or something. I—I I couldn't even tell you which episode it was for. Um, and worked on a few episodes after after that, but mostly after that, for Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and all the others, uh, the writers I, uh, used the book or. Chose not to use the book, depending on the writer, so that sometimes there's very creative Klingon on television. <laughs>
0: um, and and so TNG, other series, the movies. How has your involvement changed over the years? I mean, Star Trek's still happening. There's new Star, Star Trek is happening. still
1: happening, right? Uh, so so you know, so I did Star Trek six, and that was that was the last thing with the original cast. Mm-hmm. Um, then a little bit for. TV shows as they were going on. Uh, I, I did a bit for all, teeny bit for all the all the TV shows, including Enterprise. Um, and then there was nothing for a while. And then along comes J.J. Abrams for the new stuff. And mm-hmm. for the first J.J. Abrams movie, which is just called Star Trek, which just makes it confusing to talk about. Uh, I did... Uh, a lot of Romulan,
3: mm-hmm. and a
1: little bit of Vulcan, and a teeny bit of Klingon. But the Klingon scene got cut out of the film, so ah. it was written and filmed, but it's not a part of the movie. Mm-hmm. Not because of the Klingons; it's because you know when you edit a movie, you make all kinds mm-hmm. of decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I think it is in the special features on the DVD or mm-hmm. something. But anyway, it's not; it's not in the movie. And then in Into Darkness, uh, there is Klingon
3: mm-hmm.
1: in that one. And for that, uh, I was—I uh, made up all those lines. And the—and was originally in the script. There was a, a lot more than what ended up in the movie. Uh, a lot more Klingons, not just language. A lot of stuff going on with the Klingons. And again, that's normal as part of the editing process to change things around. But in the—in the case of of the scene with the Klingons, it's Uhura talking to mm-hmm. Klingons mm-hmm. mostly. Uh, the. Uh, they edited the scene so much, by taking stuff out and moving things around. So what was the order used to be seen one, two, three? Now it's one, three, two, and you know things like that. That what the dialogue, the remaining Klingon dialogue, didn't make any sense anymore. Yeah. So they wrote all new subtitles. What the Klingons are well, what the spoken Klingon means. It's mostly spoken by Uhura and one Klingon guy, meaning totally different stuff not totally different, but pretty much different stuff from what it originally said. So they did all that, obviously, in post-production. Say, so, well, we have, we have three choices here. Choice number one is we can shoot the scene all over again and get them to say the right thing. That's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, number two, we can just not worry about it and just let the Klingon go the way it is and put in whatever subtitles we want. Once upon a time, you might be able to get away with that. Not anymore. Or number three, they called me up and said, can you do this? Can you make up, and this is going to sound reminiscent of what we talked about way back when, can you make up Klingon dialogue that means what the new subtitles say and matches the lip (laughs) movements of of what the actors are doing? So I said, ooh, I don't know, because I can make up new uh, vocabulary. But I can't make up new grammar, mm-hmm. and, that, and that so that was the constraining part. So I said, I don't know. And they said, Well, let, let us send you the scene. So they sent me the scene over the internet in some incredibly encrypted way. Oh boy! <laughs> uh, and so I watched it, and it's Uhura, does, you know, Zoe Saldana mostly doing the talking. And I was not on the set when they did this. There were they had a, a dialogue coach who was there, who I know and. Did a, did a great job. Uh, so what I'm hearing sounded really good, except for that it was, you know, the first part of one sentence and the second part of another sentence. It was very strange. Um, but I'm looking at her lips. and Okay, I think I could do this. So fine. Zoe, Uhura, you're fine. Now, one Klingon guy has one line. So I'm listening to him. And after the first syllable, I didn't understand a thing. I said, I don't know what he's saying. So I looked at all the lines that I'd sent. And it didn't match at all. And I said, you know, did I send them something that I, you know, put in an email and didn't, you know, record anywhere else or something? No. No? It didn't even sound like Klingon. It sounded like he was talking backwards. And I go, oh, my God. So I looked at the Klingon lines that I originally sent. And I said, I think it's this one. And wrote it out phonetically backwards. Then listened to him. And that's exactly what it was. So I called them up. And I said, is this guy... Did you run the film backwards? <laughs> I know it's not film, but whatever it is, these is you know you got these mm-hmm. days. Is it going backwards? And they said, yes. And I said, why? why? Yeah. It looks better, and we knew we were going to change the dialogue anyway. Oh, wow. Oh. What I had to do was make up Klingon that was grammatically meaningful, right? Grammatically worked. Uh, to match the lip movements of some guy talking Klingon backwards. Oh, my oh. God. <laughs>
2: It's amazing. Yeah. Wow. I was,
1: there. I was there and worked with Zoe Saldana when, when she did her dubbing in. Uh, I wasn't there with with the guy, but it, it all worked out okay. Wow. Unbelievable. Jeez. <laughs>
0: um, so you probably can't talk about it, but uh, have you been approached by anybody about the new Trek stuff that's happening? Uh,
1: I have not talked with anybody about the new series. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, there, there were. We didn't hear any news at the con really, uh, except that uh, Rod Roddenberry is on board as executive Roddenberry producer. Roddenberry's
1: involved, right? And yeah. Nick Meyer is involved. Yes. Yeah.
0: which is awesome. Um, Rod, uh, he was moderating a panel uh, with Nichelle, which was awesome, and he he basically said, "Yes, I'm one of the executive producers, and no, I can't talk about it." So, right. <laughs> That was that, and. Interestingly, um, Nichelle was wonderful and talked about her history and all the things that she'd done, and he asked her at one point, have you been approached about anything? And she said, I can't talk about it. So <laughs> that was also very That's interesting. That's a good sign, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, like basically that means yes, right? Like something, yes. something's going on. So that, that was kind of cool. Um, I think we generally, as, as fans of uh, original track, have been very happy to see the people that they're bringing on board for new track for the TV yeah. series. That is, yeah, it seems like they're making I'm all too. the right choices.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very encouraging. Yeah.
0: That would be great. So outside of Star Trek, though, I mean, the series Klingon has this whole other life.
1: Yeah. What happened was I wrote this book, <laughs> and uh, it, it sold okay you know, when it came out uh not not great but okay and uh during the time i guess during the time we're doing star trek six but around that time uh pocketbooks who's the publisher decided to come out with a revised edition of the dictionary that included the stuff from star trek five and six and the next generation that i'd done so the second edition came out and it sold much better than than the first um and as a writer of a book, when you write one, you you hope it's going to sell, and you, you know, because that's why you do it. You hope people are going to read it. And But what I honestly thought was going to happen with the dictionary was people would buy it and kind of thumb through and say, oh, look, here's how you say whatever. Ha, ha, ha. And put it on the coffee table and glance at it from time to time. I didn't expect people to read it as thoroughly as they did and to study it and analyze it, you know, and, and – compile a list of all the typos and things like that. Uh, but people did. People became very, very interested in it. Um, and I think what made it kind of grow in, in the sense of, of, of the number of, of people interested and of the number of people learning it grow is the internet. Mm. Because I th- Had there not been an Internet, you know, people would have done this, looked at the book, and by themselves maybe had a good time Mm -hmm. with it or with one friend or something. But once the Internet is there, people could find each other all over the world. And they talked to each other on the Internet a lot before they actually got together in person. So a community of Klingon speakers grew, uh, I think, very much because because of the Internet. Mm -hmm. Um, But they definitely... You know, found each other, and an organization was founded called the Klingon Language Institute um, that p- published a journal four times a year called Chokhed, which is Klingon for linguistics. Um, there was a referee journal, which means you wrote an article and two or three other people looked at it to make sure it was okay. <laughs> um, it's cataloged in the Library of Congress. So if you go there, you can find it. Um, that happened. Uh, people started writing songs in Klingon or translating songs into Klingon. Uh, One one of the first translations that I'm aware of is the theme song to Sesame Street. I'm not quite sure that was done so early, but it was. Uh, And and original music as well. Uh, In Star Trek VI, as you know, uh, there's a scene where the Federation uh, and the Klingons are getting together on the Enterprise to hopefully work out a deal of some sort. Uh, And at the beginning of it, the leader of the Klingon Empire, the chancellor of the Klingon Empire, says, I'd like to propose a toast. He says, to the undiscovered country, and everyone kind of gets a blank face, but Mr. Spock, who knows everything, said something like, you know, Hamlet, Act 3, Scene 1, or whatever the numbers are. Because that phrase, the undiscovered Mm -hmm. country, is part of the to be or not to be speech. Mm -hmm. And at that point, the leader of the Klingon empire says, you can't really appreciate Shakespeare until you've read him in the original Klingon. Mm -hmm. And then General Chang, played by Christopher Plummer, Mm
3: -hmm.
1: says to be or not to be in Klingon. Well, because of that, you know, because you can't really appreciate Shakespeare until you've read him in the original Klingon, the members of the Klingon Language Institute decided that they owed it to the the galaxy not to translate but to restore all the works of Shakespeare <laughs> back to the original Klingon so they started with Hamlet uh and it's a brilliant brilliant translation it's very I have really that, smart yeah
2: the Klingon Hamlet yeah Klingon Hamlet
1: and my favorite thing about the Klingon Hamlet oh, there's a number of things but one of my favorite things about the Klingon Hamlet is I have a copy of it and uh, actually I have a few copies of it but anyway you know it, in a, any bilingual kind of book generally speaking you know the left page is one language and the right page is the same thing in the other language right so one side is English and one side is Klingon in this case I have a book at home which is the Klingon Hamlet where one side is Klingon and the other side is Czech there's no English in it anywhere. Wow. wow. And if that doesn't prove that Shakespeare didn't originally write in Klingon, I don't know what does. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um,
0: so you wanted to talk about uh, the Christmas Carol.
2: Yes. Um, a couple years ago in Chicago, I saw the Klingon Christmas Carol. Great. And as you're probably aware, in, in most cities, there is every year at least one company producing the traditional Christmas Carol. In Chicago, we have two who do it every year. And I'm like, I would die before I'd sit through Christmas Carol again. But, you know, cling on Christmas Carol. I'm going to go and see that. Yeah. And go ahead. <laughs> and it was so wonderful, so well done and very moving in ways I didn't expect. And it was so surprising to me how well that story was adapted or how the story lends itself to this, you know, warrior interpretation. Right. Right. Yeah. And then I find out that you have been in it.
1: Yeah, just once. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. The 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 Klingon Christmas Carol started in St. Paul. Uh and I think it was a sort of a, a one time fundraiser mm-hmm. thing. Not 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 just a show one night, but one... uh I don't know how often they did it for two weeks or whatever it was. Um but it was so popular that they did it again the next year. Again the next year. And then the little theater company in Saint Paul that produced this thing moved to Chicago, which is why it's been in Chicago ever since, yes. up, until, up yes. until this last year when they didn't do it. Um, and I've seen—I saw it in Chicago maybe three times, um, and I've seen it in Cincinnati. I know it was done in Saint Louis. It's actually been done in Saint Paul again, mm-hmm. and one time we did it in Washington D.C that was a that was a one night only performance fundraiser mm-hmm. thing uh and it was a reading the ones the other ones i i, I mentioned were all full productions yes, with full costumes stage. and everyone had to memorize the lines and everything mm-hmm. but we did it we did it as just a reading so people walked around with their scripts but i was scrooge oh wow uh and what was fascinating about it and i'm not an actor so that was mm-hmm. a weird anyway but what i found fascinating about it is i, I also for kind of obvious reasons, was the language coach <laughs> yeah. for, for everybody else who was in it. And there was some people who were really, you know, prior to doing this, really into Star Trek or Klingons or something, were all private. And other people who weren't, they were doing it, approaching it as they would any play.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: knew, they knew Star Trek, but they didn't really know what Klingons were all about or what the language was or anything. So to help the actors and, and, and to help myself, I prepared... a uh, Uh, sheets with all of their lines, for any individual character, a sheet with all their lines, with the Klingon lines in the English, and then a breakdown of how the grammar worked. So we could talk about where to put the emphasis and stuff like that. But in doing that, for their lines and for for my lines as well, I realized how good the translation is. Mm -hmm. The people who did this did a really, really good job. Uh, And there's some lines in there that actually, I mean, you you hear this all the time. You know, it loses something in translation. There's some there's some lines in there that are much funnier in Klingon. Oh yes. Than the, than the English translations mm-hmm. are. So. Yeah. But it's a re, it's a really smart thing, and and, and you're right. It's a it's it, the play is is funny and it's moving and it works. You wouldn't think yes. so, but it does. Yeah.
2: Yep, I I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I stayed and you know talked to the actors afterwards and everything, but um. Yeah, so you had no involvement in the actual translation.
1: Uh, I I think I contributed three words. Mm, okay. <laughs> I, t- I, I talked to the guy who was the, the, the producer and director. His, uh, his name is Christopher mm-hmm. kitter in Chicago now. Um, and when they were doing he says, you know, we don't have words for this and this. I said, okay. But other than that, I I didn't have anything to do with it, right? Wow. In the same way, I had nothing to do with the translation of, of Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Other than, other than the phrase to be or not to be, which is the one phrase that kind of doesn't work in the translation. <laughs> because, because, you know, they were thinking in terms of iambic pentameter and everything, and I right. wasn't. Yeah.
0: Um, just as an aside, and I, I don't think you were involved in this, but I loved that as we found out more about the Klingons in uh, Deep Space Nine, especially because of Worf being a, a prominent character, that in addition to loving Shakespeare, that they love opera, and that the yes. Klingon operas go on for like days and days. And, and this is part of their core culture, that Klingons love opera. And it just seems so apropos, um, you know, with, with Shakespeare and the warrior culture mm-hmm. and all that, that, that the opera. And then we would hear a little bit of it in the background sometimes.
1: Sometimes. Do you yeah. know about the Klingon opera in Holland? No. No. In 2010, I think, uh, a company in The Hague in the Netherlands produced an opera entirely in Klingon. The name of the opera is O, which means universe. Oh. Uh, it's the story of the founding of the Klingon Empire, Kalos <sighs> the Unforgettable, wow. Overspool, the Mighty Tyrant, Molar, <sighs> and all this stuff. Uh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Um, it was written in English, not Dutch. Uh, they, they wrote the libretto in English, and then I translated it into Klingon with the help of some folks at the Klingon Language Institute. Uh, and it's sung... It's sung entirely in Klingon. It's spoken and sung. There's one one character who doesn't sing. He's like a narrator guy. Mm-hmm. He talks, but everybody else sings. Real opera, um, entirely in Klingon, and they did it. I've seen the performances two or three times. They've always done it uh, with no surtitles. so you have oh. to have to know your Klingon. They wow. they give you the story synopsis and all that, so you can follow along. Uh, when they were working on it, I got an email from the composer. Who said to me that I said somewhere or other that Klingon has a nine tone music scale? (gasps) And he said, How does that work? Is that, you know, are they all equally spaced or the first two closer together and then there's a gap in the harmonics and the, the, I don't know, this musical terminology and and acoustics terminology. So I'm reading all this and I I don't know. (laughs) I don't know how this works. So I wrote back to him. And I said, you know, clearly you've thought about this a whole lot more than I have. <laughs> so do what you think is right. Good. And he quit. Oh, Not no. because of that. Something happened and he couldn't do it anymore. But before he quit, he wrote up an entire theory of how Klingon music works with a nine-tone wow. scale and gave that to the guy who ultimately did compose the music, who followed those rules. Oh. So it was this weird music. The they, The, the orchestra or is three people there's one percussionist banging on all kinds of things which makes sense of course yeah Uh, there was one wind player and she played a flute but other than that she played things like water pipes meaning like plumbing water pipes Mm -hmm. and things like that Uh, and one string player and they built actually built an instrument for him that looks like to me like the combination between a, a banjo and a chamber pot it's very weird and sometimes you pluck it, and sometimes you bow it, and sometimes you strum it. And he's the only one in the whole world who can play this thing. Well, yeah. So anyway, so, so they did the opera in Holland uh, a few times. Did it once uh, in Germany. Actually, they, they did it in Germany to a group of Klingons, to mm-hmm. Klingon fan club in Germany at their annual meeting, the get-together they were going to do anyway and got rained on they did it outside but they did it anyway because they're klingons and uh did it once i think in croatia someplace like that and the final final performance uh, was in berlin a few years ago as part of something that translates into english as the non-human music festival wow so so it it fit right in
2: yeah
1: have, you, you, can see, you can see bits and pieces of this on the internet. I don't think, and you can buy the full thing somehow or other.
2: I was going to ask yeah. if any of it was recorded, but do you know? Has any of it like been performed in recital or by not soloists? That's my knowledge. As,
1: not my knowledge. Yeah. As
2: part of their uh, classical canon, that mm-hmm. is so amazing.
1: Yeah, one of my favorite things about it actually is that the the main character mm-hmm. is this thing is Calus, of course, mm-hmm. right? Cause it's all about him. And when they were doing auditions. For for singers, you know, various people came in, and this woman came in and uh, was a soprano, and they really liked her performance, so they hired her to be Kalis. <gasps> and rewrote the score for a soprano. Wow. And she's Finnish, right? She's from Finland. Uh huh. The the three main characters, the, the the outside of the narrator, that one one was Dutch, one was Finnish, and one was German. This just a big international thing here. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was finished, and she told me that when she got the job, she was all excited about, about doing this, but she mentioned it to her parents, and her parents were so upset. Her parents in Finland were so upset because they said, what's this going to do to your career? How are you going to get an advance? How are you going to you know, advance in your, in your singing career, singing Klingon opera? <laughs> it made an international splash, this thing. Of course. There was talk about it everywhere. Time magazine, or at least the international edition, uh, about the time the opera was performed, came out. And they have a a, a section in the magazine, which is the 10 most interesting things going on in the world this week, or something Uh like that. The opera made number 11. That's okay. (laughs) That's okay. Anyway... Her parents changed their mind. They decided that this was a really good career move and they were very <laughs> proud of her. Yes. And, she, and she was excellent. She was, she was really good. Yeah. Wow. But one of my favorite things also that happens in the opera is at two points during the opera, somebody dies. Why, it's only two points. I don't know with Klingons, but anyway. Um, but two Klingons die, right. not at the same time. And each time, you know, the audience is told you have to participate By doing the Klingon Death Howl.
2: (gasps) Oh, how cool. All of
1: a sudden all these people sitting watching the opera going, Ah (laughs) man. Great. It's great. Fantastic. Oh. We love
0: we love 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 fan participation stuff like that. That people have kept the spirit of Star Trek going so many years by coming up with new and interesting takes on culture and language and, and music that just grew out of their love for Star Trek. That's not officially sanctioned and, and not a product of Paramount or CBS. Mm-hmm. And It's just because of their love for this thing. Yes,
1: yes. And this particular thing, the opera, actually got, got uh, what, interstellar publicity or something <laughs> like that, because uh, they asked me to record a little announcement saying the opera is coming, uh, and it was in Klingon, and it was an invitation to the Klingons, <gasps> huh. and they sent this out uh, via radio telescope from somewhere in Holland. They shot it out in a radio telescope to the Klingon planet in hopes that the Klingons would receive it and come and see the opera. Oh, and did and they? Well, <laughs> well, someone pointed out to the to the producer, director, uh, it's going to take a long time. <laughs> even with radio waves, to get from here to the Klingon planet. So by the time it gets there, you know this will have been over for hundreds, if not thousands <laughs> of years, however, I don't know, however far away it is. Um, but he said that's okay. He thought about that. <laughs> he, knew, he knew that that was you know, the situation. But he figured by the time this message got to the Klingon planet, they would have mastered time travel, could come back, not a problem. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Wow. That makes sense.
0: Wow, that's fantastic. So, are you working currently with anybody who's doing some fan productions of anything Klingon?
1: Not currently. No. 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 They, they, they think things come and go. You mm-hmm. know, things pop up. I'm working not as much as I should be with the with the with the language folks because the. the, the the Klingon Language Institute has an annual meeting. The next one's in Chicago in July. Um, and there's a, they, they set up a program of meetings in between the annual meetings mm-hmm. that are smaller and, and, and geographically um, covering a smaller area. Uh, but one of them really took off. So this smaller meeting, the smaller meeting that takes place in Germany, is celebrating its 15th year next year and they get more people coming to that than come to the big one in America. Wow. Hmm. Um, and so as a result of these things, I met all kinds of people who were interested in Klingon and they send me emails and want to know how to say this and how to say that. They've decided, I did not make this decision. They decided that all new vocabulary should come from me and all judgments about grammar being right or wrong or something should come from me as opposed to them the community making it up themselves um the avatar folks the Nazi speaking community has a different approach because they do make up stuff themselves but they run it by paul fromer who made up the language for the film he says yay yay or nay mm-hmm. but he doesn't necessarily make it up but mm-hmm. for klingon mm-hmm. i get i get to make it all and i did not make that decision they told me this yes you're Uh, in charge you're in charge and it makes sense now i think uh, because the klingon speaking community is is, you know relatively small and if people started making stuff up on their own it would fragment very quickly Mm -hmm. because it's so small and then people would have arguments not understand each other and so forth so until it gets big enough to really develop dialects (laughs) and things like that it seems prudent to kind of contain it in some kind of some kind of way. So I get things from them all the time. They want to know how to say this and that. And then some things I can respond to pretty quickly, and others I have to think about a lot because I don't know how to say do a decahedron in Klingon, you know.
2: Mm-hmm. What is the most challenging Klingon word you've had to come up with? Huh. Or phrase, or you yeah, know, yeah. something you remember you really had to think about. Not just the sounds, but how this would fit into Klingon culture and mindset. Yeah.
1: Hmm. Pro- well, probably the most interesting one. Although it's not, I'm not quite sure it's it's what you're talking about. Was was to be or not to be? hmm uh, and the reason is that was not originally in the script for Star Trek 6, or if it was in the script, it was not originally supposed to be in Klingon. And I arrived on the set one day, and Nick Meyer, the director, says, I need one more line from you. All right, what's that? He says, to be or not to be. And I said, okay. But I thought, oh, no, (laughs) because one of the grammatical things about Klingon is there's no verb to be. Um, So I only had or and not. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, and I wasn't about to change that for two reasons. One is because I wasn't about to change it and also because it says so in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said to Nick, well, what if, what if it means to live or not to live? Mm-hmm. And he said, okay, go tell Chris. Well, Chris is Christopher Plummer, who's mm-hmm. the one who said the line. So I go to him and he says, okay, how do you say it? Well, there's a number of different ways I could have said to be or not to be. But I so, kind of did a down and dirty way, partly because I was we had to do it right now. Um, and the word for live in the dictionary is yin. So I did essentially literally live or live not, which is yin, par, yin, bet, live or live not. So Christopher Plummer says, okay, how do you say it? I go, yin, pach, yin, bet. And he goes, yin, yin? I said, yeah. He goes, that's too wimpy. Think of something else.
3: <laughs>
1: that's not quite what he said, but that's uh-huh. what it meant. Um, I said, okay, all right, ah, what what if we say tach, pach, tach, bet? He goes, oh, tach, tach is good, we'll keep tach. Up until that moment, tach was a suffix that meant to continue doing whatever the verb is that you attach it to.
3: Oh. So
1: so eat plus tach means keep on eating, walk plus Mm -hmm. tach means continue walking, so, so on. So I kind of promoted it to be a verb in its own right. That means mm-hmm. to to continue, to go on, to endure, something like that. So it's tach, pach, tach, but to go on or not to go on, to continue or not to continue. Yeah. Oh, that's better. I, I like sense. that. I like
3: that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, so,
1: I, yes. I, so so it, it worked. It, it, it right. worked out. But it was like, you know, I'm going to all the trouble of avoiding to be. Now that's that's now that's now the star of the show. So,
2: <laughs> um, I read an interview with uh, the guy who invented, I believe, the Dothraki language for Game of Thrones, Mm -hmm. and he said, you know, the whole Dothraki culture is based on horses, and so everything is expressed in those terms, like instead of saying, um, you know, how's your day going, it it literally was something like, how is the riding today, or things like that. Is there some, like, central thought in, in Klingon or Romulan or any of the languages you've worked on that kind of draws that same sort of uh... there's
1: not 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 in a central way the way the way dothraki does um part of the reason is when i did Klingon originally for for star trek Mm three uh i only made up what had to be made up for the film Right. I was given the script and I need, we need Klingon lines that mean this, 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 this. So mm-hmm. anytime it said in the script, someone is talking Klingon, I made up that. And actually, every time someone, every time a Klingon was talking to another Klingon, I made up a Kling, in, in English, I made up a Klingon version for that. Mm-hmm. Just in case while we were filming, someone said, hey, what's he doing talking English to this guy? He should be talking Klingon. I can say, okay, here, say this as opposed to, oh, let me go think about that, right? We didn't use any of those, but uh, they, they helped flesh out the grammar and vocabulary mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Uh, but if it wasn't in the film, if it wasn't required in the f- by the script in the film or post-production or whatever, I didn't make it up. Yeah. Okay? And, I, well, I've, and, and, and it's, I've likened what I did initially to someone who builds a set or builds a prop Okay, when you on a movie set, the part that you see on camera looks really good, but you go a foot away, <laughs> and it's just two by fours holding up plywood and and it's, you know it's sh- shredding and all this stuff. But whoever designed it had to make it look real. Mm-hmm. So if there's a door that's supposed to lead to a hallway or something, and you put it in a place in the room where it makes sense to have a door that goes to a hallway. And you make the door big enough that someone could walk through it, even though it doesn't ever open and no one goes there. Okay. You have something in, the, in your mind that you didn't create, meaning the rest of the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, so what you did create makes sense. And I did the language kind of thing the same way. Or or another example. I, I have a prop. It's a, a, a Klingon knife. Okay. That you wear on your hip, part of your uniform. hmm and it's made out of plastic. It weighs nothing. But anyway, it looks really cool. Um, but it was it was never drawn. Okay, it stayed mm-hmm. on the actor's hip. Therefore, the knife does not come out of, out of the sheath. All right. Mm-hmm. Plus, the part against your body, part against your hip, is flat. It's not. It's not the the full knife or the full sheath for the knife because mm-hmm. you can't see it. Mm-hmm. So whoever made this thing right, had to, you know, have in mind what a full sheath and a full knife looks like. But they only built the part that they needed.
2: Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. And it was the same thing initially with the language. I only built the part that was needed. Right. I didn't give a, a, a great, great thought to the kinds of things you were talking about with Dothraki, with with, uh, with with the whole culture and everything mm-hmm. about the Klingons. Was now I've changed my mind about that and so forth as the years have come along. I've gone along. But initially, it, it was done that sort of way. And another thing initially about the Klingons is all we knew about Klingons at Star Trek Three time was what we saw in the original episodes. They didn't speak Klingon, but they mm-hmm. were running around, you know, looking silly without their bumps. But there they were. Um, and the little tiny bit at the beginning of the motion picture where mm-hmm. all they do is bark a few commands and disappear. And what the script told me for Star Trek Three, that's it. Okay, so the whole idea of of the Klingons having a rich culture and and, and what it means to be a warrior race Mm -hmm. and and the whole notion of honor and all that stuff hadn't come along yet. So it was just a little bits of of Klingon culture and history that I could deal with, but they were so fragmentary it really wasn't much of anything then.
2: Yeah.
1: Times have changed a lot.
2: Um, In the TNG episode with Picard and Uh Darmok, the language that's all in metaphor, I have a two-part question. Um, now I sound like a fanaticon. Okay, the, fir- the first part is: Did you have any involvement with developing that idea? And if you did not, what do you think of that um, as a form of communication? They speak completely in, in metaphors.
1: Right. Uh, I had nothing to do with that, so okay. I saw it along with everybody else on television uh, the first time. I thought it was it was a very, very, very interesting concept. Uh, they can't. I don't know that they could do everything in metaphors in in you know, within within that culture. But they could right. certainly they could certainly do a lot and, and the important things might be done that way. Uh the little everyday things I'm sure they would have even if it even if it started as some kind of metaphor would have been reduced to a you know, one or two word shortcut mm-hmm. uh for everyday everyday kinds of things. Um, what, what's interesting about all that is if everything's speaking, if everybody communicates via metaphor only, how that got going in the first place. Once it's, once it's established, yeah. I can see, because especially, you know, I could see even initially a, a, a context here, a phrase there, or something like that, but how it got to be everything, yeah. I'm not quite sure how that would work.
2: I'm wondering if, it, if now I'm, you know, just theorizing, but if there could be like a high and low version of the language and, you know, the, the high language may be used for formal occasions or only by the educated class or something is mostly metaphor. And then the low language, as you were saying, is just used for the little day to day things yeah. where you're not uh, trying to express more than just concepts, which it seems yeah. to me that would be.
1: Yeah, that would make sense Yeah, to have that kind of distinction. Yeah, still, at the, at, the, at the high end, I think you'd still have stuff in addition to just the metaphor. But, I,
2: I have yeah. always thought so, but um, yeah, mm-hmm. I wanted to get your take on it. Thank yeah. you.
0: That that episode came on while I was in graduate school. Really? And everybody flipped out over it because uh-huh. it was like a, a Star Trek episode that had been written for linguists.
2: Did yeah, you guys discuss it that, and this, analyze it to he, death? Oh, yeah yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, when, you know, my, my thought about that. A thought about that when it first came on was well, take take two steps back. In in science fiction, uh, TV shows and movies and stuff like that, most of the time, uh, pr- prior to Klingon anyway, uh, when the, when the two races species we ever meet each other, either we go out there or they come to us doesn't make any difference. They have to communicate somehow so that so that there'll be a story, mm-hmm. unless the story is about how they can't communicate. Mm-hmm. Which it generally is not mm-hmm. right, okay, but in this one it was yeah, and that was cool
0: yeah that that was the super cool part about yeah. it. Mm-hmm. it It's funny to, now that people um have just dispensed with well, in my experience, watching media problems of communication so i think when douglas adams invented uh, the babblefish yes that just became the touchstone for people so um i've been watching mark i don't know if you ever watch any of the like dc stuff on tv but there's one called legends of tomorrow and they essentially did to understand another language a babblefish thing it wasn't a fish but they had to swallow it and it instantly <laughs> allowed them well to both yeah, speak there has and to be, understand. Right. yeah
1: yeah yeah i mean a lot of times in, you know in the, in the in the B movies of the 40s and 50s and stuff like that just ignore it mm-hmm. okay you know go to Mars and everyone talks English mm-hmm. or yeah. 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 Um, but later on then you get it with the 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 fish yeah or Star Trek you have the universal translator <laughs> yes no one's quite sure how it works you no know, it's just a flashlight but it's there and once once you've established yes we realize there's different languages here and we're taking care of it with this contraption okay we mm-hmm. don't have to we don't have to deal with that anymore.
2: Well, I don't know Just if you
1: except heard... The... Except, except sometimes. Yes. <laughs>
2: right. Um, there was a uh, an opera company, I believe it was in Texas within the last year, that produced one of Mozart's operas, but set it in the Star Trek universe. So there were red shirts and everything. Uh-huh. And when the, the Klingons came on and they're singing in what I'm guessing is Klingon, the, the super title said Klingon... More Klingon, and then <laughs> finally, Kirk yells "Universal Translator," and yeah. all of a sudden, you're getting the translation of right. what good, they're good. singing. Yeah,
1: yeah. good.
0: Um, in in a lot of uh, fan fiction about original series, uh, they make a lot of the fact that Uhura actually is fluent in many languages, and that's mm-hmm. one of her advantages as a superior uh, communications officer. Right, and that,
1: that and that comes up in the in the. In the Zoe Soldata version. Yeah, mm-hmm. right,
0: right, exactly, and that's what you'd think they would be, and I think many of us were very frustrated by the scene in which she's got the stupid dictionaries laid out on the the. Console. I'll tell you. The, I'll
1: tell you about that scene. <gasps> oh please, <laughs> yes, please, share. A little bit. I I was not there when they filmed that. I it had nothing to do with writing it or anything mm-hmm. like that. But as originally written and conceived, um, there was not a lot of. I believe, I mean, my, this is a long time ago, so my memory is shot, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't remember going through lots of books and stuff. In the first version, you know, it entered in at some point. Um, and in fact, the computer was taking care of the translation. Uhura was still going to have to say stuff to that guy.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay? But they didn't have to go rummaging through all kinds of dictionaries to do it. The computer would do it for them,
3: mm-hmm.
1: all right? And there's a computer... Uh, screen right behind her during that scene <laughs> yeah okay that says the English and says the Klingon so I don't know what they're doing looking at the dictionaries just look up at the computer screen because yeah. they added all that stuff and didn't change the graphics
0: they just I, I mean clearly they were like oh this will be a great comedy moment mm-hmm. you know yeah. we'll do yeah. it and it'll be relatable and and you know for I think a lot of the audience it was and then for people like me and you know mm-hmm. we were like, oh, don't do that. Well, and
2: I've heard
1: so Nichelle. If you don't Nich- have to thing about about Uhura being being the great poly polyglot. Then mm-hmm. then it's funny. But if you think, wait a minute, she's supposed to know all these things. Yeah, then-
2: exactly. Well, um Nichelle Nichols has said she fought against that scene. Mm-hmm. She yeah, thought, it, you know, it made the character and all the characters really look rather stupid and unprepared for what they surely should have known they would encounter at some time. Uh-huh is you know having to speak the language yeah. right right yeah
0: um so i want to switch gears just a little yes. bit but we mentioned dothraki but please let's talk about the movie um your movie your conlanging movie the conlanging movie yeah. right so so tell everybody
1: a little bit about it what was the genesis of that the genesis of that is is actually it was the guy who was the the dialogue coach uh, for klingon for into darkness oh. this guy named named Britain watkins uh, who's also a big Navi fan and is also a guy who likes to make up languages and has made up some of his own? Uh, got the idea from talking to people, you know, he, and, and he mentions all this stuff. People say, Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. He got the idea of making a documentary about people who make up languages. So he's gathered together a group of language creator types. Uh, to be, you know, our our title is either executive producer or associate producer, but we're mainly at sort of advisors uh, uh, and 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 helpers to uh, shape what what this documentary is. And so, and, and who the 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 team of producers is interesting because it's me, it's uh, Paul Frommer who made up Navi for Avatar, it's. David Peterson, who, who's the one you mentioned before, um, who made up Dothraki for Game of Thrones, plus lots of other languages for TV and movies. Um, it's a guy named David Sallow, who did the uh, Elvish languages for the Lord of the Rings movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, Tolkien made up the language, but he had to expand on all that because mm-hmm. Tolkien didn't make up enough dialogue. <laughs> and uh, Christine Schreier, I think that's how you say her name. I'm not sure, but anyway, she's uh, made up Kryptonian for one of the Superman movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, So we're the we're the we're the producers uh, and they've talked to and it's not about making up languages for the movies that's in there, Mm
3: -hmm.
1: you know, and and we're all in there a little bit, but it's mostly people who make up languages because they're interested in this and it's fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tolkien, when he was doing this, because everyone thinks of Tolkien as the first one who made up languages or something, Mm -hmm. but he's not people have been making up languages probably since language came along Mm -hmm. but certainly for hundreds and hundreds of years uh tolkien referred to making up languages as and i'm blanking on the on the phrase uh, as his secret vice Mm -hmm. in other words didn't talk about it people didn't Mm -hmm. know he did it and there's something illicit about it like smoking or drinking or something Mm -hmm. shouldn't be doing it um but people have you know, sort of had that notion, but we're doing it by themselves because it was fun and interesting for the most part. And only lately, and again, the internet is probably responsible, but they've found each other. And there's a whole community of people all over the world who like to make up languages. And they have conferences now to talk about talk about ideas. There's books. There's all kinds. Of, uh, David Peterson from Dothraki wrote a terrific book that came out a few months ago called The Art of Inventing Languages or something like that. mm mm-hmm. Um, and the languages these people have, have come up with and how it fits into their lives, that second part's really important, is absolutely fascinating. Um, some of them do it because they have some kind of notion about the way logic ought to work. Some of them started to do it because they made up a writing system and wanted to have a language that goes with it or made up a world once to have a language that fits in the world. Some of it are... Some of them are real linguists. Some of them come from the point of view of, of storytelling or myth-making or something like that. It's all these different things uh, and, and how it works in their lives. And there's, there's, so far anyway, we're, sort, we're still early on and in rough cuts, but there's no boring stories. So. Wow. That's awesome.
0: When is it likely to be released?
1: Hopefully by the end of the year. And it's still really enough in the year that I can say that.
2: Yes. <laughs> Great. That sounds very interesting.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. We we watched uh, quite a while ago, but we saw the movie that uh, Bill Chatner made in Esperanto.
1: Esperanto, right. Yeah, that's the only movie ever made in Esperanto yeah. that yes. I'm aware of. Um,
0: have you seen it?
1: I've seen clips of it. I've never seen the whole thing. Uh, it's no. very strange. It's good, but it's good. Yes. Like you yes. wouldn't
0: think it would be as good as it is. And um, Bill's very good, and his co stars are good, and they give a very convincing performance. And The language is very weird when you start hearing it, but you get used to it really quickly and mm-hmm. it's just like seeing any other um non English language that has subtitles and right, right. um they they did an excellent job, I think, of speaking convincingly mm-hmm. and putting the stress in the right places and not making it sound artificial. It sounds very natural yes
1: good good yeah, yeah.
0: but but it's a weird movie, like why would you make the first Esperanto movie about? A cult of devil worshippers in like (laughs) a small town. Who was this supposed to appeal to? (laughs) Something a little more mainstream would have been better. Yeah, to bring this language to the world. Um, Let's see. So we've covered that. Oh, so let's let's talk a little bit about um, some more fan stuff because you and I had spoken briefly about. Star Trek and uh, trademarks and copyrights mm-hmm. and things oh, like that yes. <laughs> and how it affects it, so we've been following the Axonar stuff very closely because it's a big deal in, in the Star Trek world, and mm-hmm. most recently what happened was that um, well, um, CBS Paramount suing the makers of, of Axonar and the Axonar people as their defense said, "Well, Paramount, you need to define what Star Trek is." And just last week, I think, Paramount handed them back a laundry list of things that make up Star Trek, one of them being Klingon. Right. So are you getting involved in this? I mean, if you can't talk about it, tell us so. But it seems like they'd be wanting to call you at some point. Yeah, and, and, I, haven't,
1: I haven't talked to anyone officially. Uh-huh. Um, I think it's interesting, and and I'm, I'm kind of pleased in a, in a funny way, that the fact that the klingon language is in that mix of things mm-hmm. gets the headlines
3: yeah yeah, yeah it totally
0: did cuz there,
1: there was a story in the hollywood reporter and the headline yeah. was klingon language is da da, da da you know
3: yeah.
1: uh they have a long long list of stuff mm-hmm. in their in, in in the cbs paramount response okay and klingon language is only one there's all kinds of things about about pointy ears and character names and planet names mm-hmm. and plot uh, things and on and on and on and on and klingon language is only one, but that somehow gets the grabs people's attention mm-hmm. which, is, which is great from my from my point of view, mm-hmm. not just in this country someone in Germany sent me an article from a german magazine that the same thing the headline was had something to do with the Klingon language, and then the <laughs> rest of the story was about the what was going on with the suit um, it'll be interesting to see to see what happens my my guess and if I ever you know, get involved with this officially, I'll have to shut up, I suppose, but <laughs> my guess is that the the language component to all this is, is is very small potatoes um that mostly what they're concerned about is is other things. The language is in the mix mm-hmm. from their view, but there's all these other things too um and if it if it ever boils down to just the language, then then you start picking apart exactly what it is that Paramount is saying. And stuff like that. Uh, one of the the article in the Hollywood Reporter uh, said something about the fact this is not the first time that the you know who owns Klingon issue mm-hmm. came up. I should say that I don't. <laughs> right, um, it's work for hire. It's, correct. it's work for hire. So all yeah. all the work I did uh, for the movies is work for hire. They said do this, and I did it. You know, uh, the book is copyright Paramount. It's not copyright me. Mm. Um, but the issue, uh, and, and people did talk about, you know, who owns it, who who can use it and, and all this and that. As far as I know, it's never been settled. The Hollywood Reporter has, a, in the online version anyway, has a, has a link to an old discussion about the Klingon language where this is brought up. And whoever did that said that the language is copyright paramount, but it's not. The language is not. Mm-hmm. Um, the book is, Mm -hmm. Okay, But that's not the same thing. So if you pick up a copy of of Webster's dictionary, it'll say at the beginning, you know, copyright Merriam-Webster company or something. That doesn't mean every word in the book is copyrighted by Mm Merriam-Webster and you have to get permission from them to use it. It means this particular work, this book, Mm -hmm. this collection of things is copyrighted by by Merriam-Webster. And it's the same thing with the Klingon dictionary. But it is an artificial language that was created for hire. So it's not clear. Yeah. But to the best of my knowledge, it's never been uh, officially settled by anybody. Yeah. It
0: seems like it would be hard, especially if you're creating words now that have never been a part of any official Star Trek production. Mm-hmm. Those I mean, that's a very blurry area, isn't it? Right, because... yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's,
1: it's yeah, it's very fuzzy, it's so, very fuzzy. So as I say, if it, it, as I, you know, I, I don't think in the Axonar thing that the language, despite the headlines, is, is the major thing by all mm-hmm. at all, but if it ever becomes an issue, then all these kinds of things will have to be talked
2: about. Yeah, well, in, in the area of artificial languages, and I'm asking this because I actually do not know, does anybody own the various computer languages?
1: I, as my understanding is, the c- computer languages can be copyrighted. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and But there was a suit about that, too, with it was uh, Google and somebody, mm-hmm. Sun Systems, which Sun Systems became right. somebody else. They're called something else. Um, but that was even, uh, and, and people said, oh, hey, watch out Klingon, because depending on how this suit goes, that'll affect Klingon, too, since they're both mm-hmm. created languages. Right. Um but even there, it's 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 not clear because it wasn't the whole language; it was some subset of it, or something very mm-hmm. technical that, that I don't understand. So it's it's still all all very very murky. Yeah,
0: I think Unix used to be owned by Berkeley because that was where it had been developed oh, originally. But that may okay. have changed. I remember yeah. seeing yeah. that. In, I have a book about Unix that I got, mm-hmm. and it says copyright, you know, University wow. of Berkeley. Yeah. That, that's where they did it. Yeah.
2: Hmm. Oh,
0: very interesting. Well,
2: I think we have kept you long enough. More than long enough. But everything you've had to say was so interesting. Thank Thank you you so much for your time. You're welcome. You're welcome. This is fun.
0: Oh, we love talking about all this stuff. So um, we'll keep up on developments with the movie on our show. We'll keep talking about it. And maybe when the movie comes out, we could speak again a little bit. Oh, that would be great. Oh, yeah. About how things are going. That would be very awesome. Wow. Well, thank you so much.
1: All right. Thanks. Okay. Thanks, Mark. We'll talk to you soon. Okay.
2: Bye. Bye.